Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 340, recording on Thursday, November 21st, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com, which is a website about books and reading. Hello, hello. Um, we're officially closed to recommendation requests. Thank you so much. We've got a whole bunch in there. Really some interesting ones I ones, yeah. immediate, immediately had an answer for, and some I'm, I'm going to have to think and ask and poke around mm-hmm. for. Yeah, same here. I've had some obvious ones and then some like, oh, hmm, let me check on that. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, though, we are still open for feedback about the bonus episodes. Um, we're going to do some in 2020. That's about as much as we can talk about right now because we're not really <laughs> sure at this point. So uh, if you if you want to speak for the things that you like the best, things you didn't like as much, or have other ideas for us to consider, uh, please shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot. Dot com. A lot of news this week, so let's do a sponsor and we'll get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, uh, follow-up for, boy, it's not follow-up, it's following, continuingly falling down uh, yeah. on the Nobel pri- <laughs> from the Nobel Prize. At first, I thought this was, when I saw this, I thought this was a joke, some kind of mm-hmm. misconstruction. This really surprised me. So, uh, I don't know, can you handle this better than my surprise? What, what's going on with this particular story? 
I, it's not so much, I don't know if it was surprised so much as like face palm for me. This is like deeply mm-hmm. face palm that following the double Nobel um, this year, one of the people who won it was Peter Honke. Lots of criticism around that selection um, because he denied the Serb genocide of Muslims in Bosnia. And the short version of ha- of what has happened is that in responding to the criticism, two of the Nobel jurors started citing the sources that they consulted in the process of making up their minds about whom they would give the award to. Um, and one of the jurors, Henrik Peterson, cited a book by a little-known author who um, writes for an online literary magazine, and another juror said that he relied on a book by um, a historian. Neither of those books has been translated from German. They have only a handful of citations on the German version of Google Scholar. Um, both of those books defend Hanke's skepticism over whether over the scale of the Serb atrocities, and they endorse Hanke's argument. And basically, these books are conspiracy theory books. Um, the books mm-hmm. have huge flaws that the Nobel jurors just seem to not have recognized. They support a conspiracy theory that asserts that an American publicity firm masterminded a campaign to inflate Serb atrocities and thus shift the U.S. opinion against the Serbs. And so reading these books, uh, presumably they read the books independently of each other, but then each of them came to the discussions um, of the jury having taken in these conspiracy theories and believed them as real. Um, This led to at least these two people voting in favor of giving the award to Hanka. It was the headline, you know, was like, Peter Hanka wins the Nobel Prize because jurors fall for conspiracy theory. And I remember Mm -hmm. clicking on it being like, Okay, but which conspiracy theory? <laughs> like, what is this going to be? This is such a bad look. Just such a bad look. And it's it's one of those things, too, that feels like... So these two books they read, um, they weren't sourced well. Because right. the, this it's a really interesting piece in The Intercept that says, finding people even familiar with this theory who work, uh, who study, historians that study the Bosnian War are like, oh, yeah, I think I've heard about that on a bulletin board somewhere. Like, these these Nobel jurors aren't going out and asking domain experts for the reading they should do to do their background. It looks like they... It feels to me like they did Google searches for books to read mm-hmm. and because these are popular online amongst a certain crackpot community yep. that they floated to the top. And it's the, the kind of conspiracy theater... It's not the same as, but it's in the same intellectual realm, which means not much of one, as like Holocaust deniers, mm-hmm. it sounds like. There are people looking for an excuse to say things weren't as bad as they really were, let someone off the hook. Apparently, this PR firm did do some work, but it wasn't, it did not make, it did not change the facts about what actually happened. And that's basically what these people think or the books they were reading is informed by this idea that things weren't as bad as they think. And this largely a product of sort of a wag the dog style propaganda campaign, which again, I'm no expert. I'm way out of my field here, but the experts being cited here say, this is not, this is not credible in any meaningful (laughs) way, let alone the kind of thing that should weigh in basically exonerating Hanka from his comments about, um, Slobodan Milosevic and other people, mm-hmm. you know, involved. Uh, a really surprising look. This is why they, I guess, this is why the Nobel Prize jurors don't say their sources because this <laughs> is kind of the garbage they're looking at. Like, 
I'm glad they said it because now I know right. it's like, I oh, mean, it is, it is bad. It I, is well, as bad as you fear. Right. And I think the real question is like, did they know it was garbage? Presumably they didn't. They're citing it as credible. And that's, that's a real concern. This has the real feeling to me of like a late night Google rabbit hole um, that you fall down and those conspiracy theory circles on the internet are just like self-feeding entities that once you have bought into the idea that one of these books might be worth it, I'm sure you can find sources, probably not credible ones, that encourage you to to read it and that say that the book is valid and that these arguments are true. And like we talk a lot in the, I think, in public discourse now about like kids needing to be educated about how to discern good sources from bad ones, especially mm-hmm. on the internet. But it occurs to me like that the Nobel jury, I think, is made up of mostly also older folks who may have missed that same kind of education about internet resources or who never got it because the internet appeared too late. And if you're not like an actively internet-y person, it can be really difficult to discern like what comes up in a Google search and why it's there. Um, Is it because a bunch of conspiracy theory folks have bought into it and like floated it up to the top of the results or is it legit? And I'm concerned that the people who are like trying to build back the credibility of the Nobel Prize um, seem to not have taken steps to really research the sources and verify that the sources they were looking at were legitimate ones. Um, that mm-hmm. that this has happened is a real blow to an already damaged body. I think. I mean, we don't know. We know a little bit about how the nomination process works. Like, a, an, an author has to be nominated twice for the Nobel Committee to even consider them. But once they're nominated, I don't think we—at least I don't—know much about then. Then what? Th- then what happens? Presumably, there's some sort of vetting, some sort of how are you actually evaluating whether this author versus this author should win it? I guess it's good that they're doing background research. I think it's bad that. Whatever process led to this needs to change. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever process led to this happening, I don't care what it is, is not how we should be doing this. Because this, isn't, this is one of those things where you manage for results and the results are bad, you got to change your management of the situation too. I, I mean, in a way, it, it explains how Hanka was awarded the award. Mm. Like, if you do believe this, he doesn't come off as looking as bad, but you shouldn't believe this, it doesn't right. seem like. So I don't know which of those two people. Do you want to be an apologist or a dupe? Because it sounds like you're one of those two people. Um, if you've chosen to basically give Hanka a pass for these comments. Um, so follow up there. Uh, follow up on this story. Um, actually, is this? No, this is a different story about LBGQ books, LBGTQ books being reversed from, removed from school libraries. We were talking about Virginia last week. This is West Virginia, which is different states, um, I'm told. The mm. Senate map tells me that. Um <laughs> So Brian, uh, excuse me, Daniel Hack, Brian Hack is someone I went to high school with. (laughs) Daniel Hack is an author of a picture book called Prince and Knight, which is a rhyming picture book that has two, um, the the romantic leads are men. And he was upset that his books were pulled from the shelves of a West Virginia library. And he says, you know, people... He says, you know, anyone that is concerned that a book could turn someone gay should remember that, quote, all the gay adults who exist today grew up only reading about straight romances, which is... You know, one of those wonderful points whose wonderfulness comes from its obviousness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if if what you read was, if what you read was determinative of your sexuality, then there would be no gay people, right? Because when we were kids, we didn't read about any. We we didn't even say the word gay in Kansas. Um, I don't. I mean, seriously, I don't think mm-hmm. I knew in a, in a school setting. 
probably till I was in college mm. from a teacher or curriculum. I, I, I don't think the idea of someone being gay was broached in an academic setting until I was in college. So there you go. And that's West Virginia's politics are you know somewhat similar to Kansas. It's just the kind of thing you need to be reminded of in these debates is like, wait a minute, the cause effect here that people are worried about just doesn't exist. That's not, yeah. that's not, that's not the vectors of influence we're talking about at all here. Um, I'm not sure. Was there anything else about this story you wanted to highlight? I thought that was enough for me. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yep, I'm that's enough. With. It's going on, and there's just a little bit of follow-on that um, they there was a meeting, uh, I think, yesterday, because this is just an update from this morning as we're recording, that um, multiple people left the Upshur County Public Library upset after the decision regarding where it should be placed has been dismissed until further notice. Um, so the issue is whether to keep it in the children's section or move it to the young adult section. And that question is going to remain unanswered, I guess, for an in- indefinite amount of time. Uh, the director says that no decision, the director of the Upshur County Public Library says no decision was made about the book and that the library's administration is going to be preparing a written statement for the public once they've made their final decision for the book's placement. Um, they hope to come to a decision before January. So if you're in Upshur County, West Virginia, you can reach out to your mm. uh, library and let them know that you would support them in keeping this where it is. Like it's very clearly a picture book, and this shenanigan of like just move this book into the section for young adults is, I think, just a strange proposal anyway. Because you know that if it were over there, then there would be a campaign to take all the gay books out of the YA section too. It is interesting <laughs> though that that's the proposed solution because we've talked about this how the battlefront right. mm-hmm. over inclusivity has moved sort of down the age ladder, right? You know, we don't really have these sorts of protests around YA books anymore, at least to my knowledge. If you know of one out there, podcastofbookwrite.com. But it's moved down towards like, well, surely these kids are too young to see two men in a romance where, it, you know, no, no one's saying that if it was a man and a woman, that wouldn't be an issue, right? It's not that they're, it's not that it's a romance. It's the, the who the romantic leads are. Mm-hmm. Um I'm not going to name the person's name because I don't want to put their name in my mouth, but the putting the book on the library shelves was, quote, an intentional leading of children to sin. <sighs> go, go jump off something tall. That's all. May your efforts fail. May your efforts fail. Okay. Um, it's going to be delayed. Let's do one more kind of follow-up situation. The Memphis Public Libraries have joined the overdue fines cancellation trend. Memphis, you know, these are, I was thinking about that when we talk about Chicago, talk about Boston, these are the teams with NBA teams, these are cities with NBA teams, like essentially once, once all the big enough <laughs> cities that cover NBA teams, I wonder if it'll trickle down to the mid-market and smaller teams, uh, uh, smaller teams, smaller cities, but like I was like, oh, Memphis and Boston and yeah. Chicago and uh, all these places are, are looking to it and it seems to be accelerating there too. Um, this isn't the show notes, but speaking of trends accelerating, I believe your home library system in Richmond mm-hmm. has joined the Macmillan embargo. Amanda, ah, I don't know if you saw her put Amanda that Amanda and I are in separate library systems. We live in different... Oh, that's right. <laughs> we okay. live in different counties, but I don't think it'll be long until my home county joins also. Right. Uh, as your county has turned purple, so do purple uh, mm-hmm. um, bookish-related... Um, Stories start infiltrating 
there as well. Anything about the Memphis story? I don't you know, think it's anything new that we haven't heard exactly, but it's maybe not, there's something else. I like it when we get to see numbers for these things. And the ah. Memphis Public Library was bringing in $80,000 a year in fines. And that is not a small line item for mm-hmm. a public library budget. Um, so I would be curious about how the decision got made or where they're going to be able to make up you know, that loss in budget. How does that get absorbed. I'm curious about this for all libraries. If you are one of our lovely librarian listeners and you would be willing to be a little birdie, um, if you know how libraries are compensating for getting rid of their late fees Mm. um, for the revenue that occurs from that, please let us know. Podcast at bookriot.com and make sure you let us know also if it's okay to give your name or not. Um, Okay. I guess one more follow-up before we do another sponsor and then to the new news uh, of the week. I had some people write in about their um, Libby Hold management systems, which I find fascinating. I oh. about, like, how, knowing what we know now about how much it costs a library per digital checkout, a lot of people didn't know that. They mm. were like us, like, wait, for, uh, basically it's a $4 per checkout for things they put on hold and, and don't read. Um, I don't think I made the note that you can... If you see that you're coming to the top of a line for a hold, but you're not ready for it, you can choose to suspend the hold, but you keep your place in line so that when you turn the hold back on, you don't get bumped back all the way Mm. to the back, which is particularly useful for me because, like I said, I tend to batch, you know, I get in the mood to like, let's put some stuff on hold on Libby because I'm, you know, I'm in the mood to do it. I've got a list, something jolted my memory. But then what happens is they tend to come in a cluster, like eight will come in at a time. I can't read. I'm not going to read all eight of them in the 21-day hold period. But I guess what I can do, I'm going to try this, is if I see them getting close to some of them that I want to read but I'm not ready for, then I could suspend the hold. And then when I'm ready for them, unsuspend the hold. I'll be third or fourth in line. It'll come in a little bit closer so that I can feed my supply-demand curve uh, a little more efficiently there. A couple people said one thing they do. And I don't want to judge anyone right now, but you can hear my voice. I'm a little worried about this is if they borrow on their Kindle, what they'll do is if they're not going to get to it before their hold period up, they'll turn the Wi-Fi on their Kindle off, oh, right? So that clever. it doesn't automatically mm-hmm. get renewed. Well, it's clever, but is it the spirit of what you're supposed to be doing? Because well, then you're just making the hold list go forever. Like That's true. I, hmm. I, my my thing was at first I was like, oh, that'd be a good way for me to hold on to something. But wait a minute. I've agreed to a 21-day loan period. If I can't get it to that, I should return it. These people are saying, and I think I understand their, not their argument, they're not trying to be selfish. They're saying, well, at least I won't return it without having read it, so the library won't get charged the $4 mm-hmm. you know, or, or you know, use that chit in the, um, no, the metering of that particular ebook. I guess I understand that, but I'm just not sure, but that's something that people do. What do you think about? Am I am I being too cl- pearl clutchy to wonder about my my morality of turning <laughs> off my iPad's Wi-Fi to keep the Kindle book? I don't think it's too pearl clutchy. I think this is exactly the kind of conversation that we want to be having and the kind of information yeah. that it's important to give consumers or important to give library patrons about how their behavior impacts the resources that they're mm-hmm. using. I think more library users want to know these kinds of things because there is a real 
dopamine rush to just like putting a million things on your holds list or then getting a million of your holds in at the same time. And it's easy to just like, you know, go down a Goodreads rabbit hole and keep adding things. Um, and for people to understand mm-hmm. the impact of that, not just to the li- to the library's budget, but how, you know, affecting the library affects other patrons. Like this feels like a part of the social contract that we just didn't know was part of the social contract of being a yeah. library user right. before. I'm, I'm like, this right. would... I don't do much library usage with ebooks, but if I did, I think I would be keeping this in mind about how many to request mm-hmm. at a time and what I was going to do with things that were on on hold. I'm curious about listeners too. Like this is all new information to us about what these behaviors for um, ebook holds do to libraries. Does it change anything for you know, what you will do. Like the, there are lots of memes about adding a jillion books to your library mm-hmm. holds list. So will that be changing for you as a library patron? Um, because now, you know, it. there's an effect of it to the library system and to other readers. Right. I guess um, we've had a few librarians email us that are in the digital collections for their local branch weigh in about, you know, is this, is this something you don't mind patrons doing, you know, turning their Wi-Fi off on their device? So they, basically are hacking their borrowing time, which even as I say it makes me even, mm. my, my, my clutching intensifies, um, even <laughs> as I say it in that particular way. But, but if you would let us know, maybe, maybe you could let me off the moral hook um, or let our listeners off. You know, again, I don't want to judge other people, but I was like, oh, I was more thinking about like sort of from a categorical imperative point of view. If everyone did mm, this, right. <laughs> would the effect be desirable or not. I think it also speaks to, and again, I don't want to get into the particulars of the Macmillan thing again today, but I think this kind of thinking is related in that, in that we are in a new, there is this whole new world of using your library around digital content. And I think it's not it's significantly because Libby is good. People right. want to use Libby. Like it's easy to use, it's easy to put stuff on hold, and so on and so forth. So that the paradigm of borrowing around digital materials has changed. So I'm not surprised that some pricing discussion has happened, to put it mildly. But I also think from a user's point of view, the, the, we're not existing in the same world we were existing as a library patron in 1994, like mm-hmm. I was. Like, or, uh, earlier for me when I was really a heavy user of a public library as a, as a teen and young adult and college student where I kind of understood, like I had the physical book, I turned it in. If I didn't turn it in, I'd get a fine. Well, the fine thing is going away, but I understood that if I had the book, someone else didn't have it. Right. <laughs> I took it back. Um, <laughs> You know, I guess in some way I understood that it wasn't then on the shelf for somebody else, that my wear and tear on the book participated in its eventual need to be replaced, or I guess literal shelf life, just in a Mm -hmm. different way of that particular title. Whereas in the digital world, I think that whole paradigm, our mental model of libraries hasn't been updated enough to account, um, both on the publisher side, and I think for good or for ill, and on the user side. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in the whole thing. Yeah, it's um, fascinating. To be quite honest. Okay, are you... another sponsor. Oh, wait, wait, go ahead. I was going to ask if you are going to... Um, will you be turning the Wi-Fi off on your iPad and just like I, holding I, your breath? I can't do it. Hoping no one sees you? No, I, I can't do... I don't think I can. I don't think I can. I don't think I can. I think if I haven't read it by the time my hold is up, I don't want to read it. Just got to get back in line. I mean, maybe I take that as a sign, get, mm. get back in line. Mm-hmm. I will mess with the suspend hold thing. Yeah, like, that's I'm not interesting. ready to do it, Maybe that's a better way of managing my sort of um, reading window is not mm-hmm. to extend it once I have it, but to more accurately gate when it comes in, the window opens yeah. for me. Um, all right, let's do a sponsor. All right. 
you know, one of the most predictable big news weeks of the years when the National Book Award comes out. Um, and lo and behold, last night, the National Book Award winners were announced. Weirdly, you and I are both... Are you done with it yet? Or you started or what? I'm just about to start. Okay, we're just... Both of us had queued up Trust Exercise by Susan Choi, mm-hmm. which won the fiction um, category, which... I heard some that this has made a made a few lists. I knew, it, of course, we knew it was on the long uh, short list, so it's not a complete surprise. But it's been mentioned in many of the premature best books of the year lists we've seen mm-hmm. come out this year. I snagged it as a book right deal of the day for three dollars, which is another moral quandary that I don't want to get into right now. <laughs> buying ebooks for three dollars, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, at least that's what they, that's what they're telling. I mean, they're offering it for sale from the publisher for that. So at least I understand that that's the part of the agreement. But the wider sustainability of that purchase is a subject for uh, another uh, a panic attack. Um, but so Susan Choi wins for Trust Exercise. I've heard a lot of good things about it. It's mm-hmm. nice and short for those of you who care about those sorts of things, as I do. Uh, Young People's Literature, the winner, 1919, The Year That Changed America by Martin W. Sandler. Um, The translated literature is Baron Weckenheim's Homecoming by Laszlo. Whoa. Uh, Krasna Horakai, just took a shot. Um, That's a Hungarian title. Um, Sight Lines by author Arthur Say, I believe is how you say that, S-Z-E. And nonfiction, The Yellow House, by Sarah M. Broom, which I've been sort of circling, I have to say. Um, it's a memoir um, about someone growing up in uh, a shotgun house in New Orleans East. Mm. Um, so all the things that go that, um, the Yellow House is destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. The author there, I think, um, if I didn't say it, it's Sarah M. Broom. Out available now. I've heard it's great on audio. Uh, so that's where I was kind of looking for it. So I've read none of them. I'm going to read Trust <laughs> Exercise. I probably will read The Yellow House at some point. I think this might tip me over the edge mm. for that. Um, yeah. I don't know. What else? Anything I've read, else? I've read none of them other than I've read none of the winners. I've only read one of the mm. finalists. I read Thick by Tracy McMillan Cottom earlier this year. And that was a great okay. essay collection. Yeah. yeah, this is one of the National Book Awards are ones that I tend to be just sort of like some years I've read a lot and some years I've read not so much and I'm reading less front list fiction these days. So just got a, I got a lot to catch up on here at the end of the year, but I'm excited mm. to start trust exercise, especially because um, I've been hearing one of our uh, own folks at Book Riot, Jess, was telling me it's one of those books that like either apparently either you love it or you hate it. People have really strong feelings about it, and I like those kinds of books um, that you know elicit a strong response. I have no idea what it's about, and I'm really happy to be going. Blind. I don't either. I love that. Like how I have managed to not know anything about it. I'm not sure, but I really like going in blind. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to find out. Um, yeah, there we are. I mean, there are the awards. Um, you can find the link to the, the all the winners and finalists if you need a refresher on those. Maybe we'll talk about trust exercise at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. 
you have exclamation points for a couple of these. Why don't you go take us through the next few of these ah, and tell us well. the, the reason and origin of your explanation, uh, exclamation points. <laughs> I do have exclamation I was like, what did I make exclamation points about? But yes, I'm very excited about a couple of things this week. Uh, earlier this year, it seemed like everyone in the world was reading or listening to Daisy Jones and the Six yes. by Taylor Jenkins Reid. We both loved it. It's fantastic on audio. If you are looking for an audiobook for a road trip for the holidays, um, probably not one that's super child-friendly, but if it's just you and some friends or a partner or you and your own self, it's a great audiobook. And uh, it's slated to be an Amazon series. And we've been wondering, like, who is going to play Daisy Jones. Um, Mm -hmm. I had told a friend that I think that I thought it needed to be someone who was a relative newcomer that we don't have like a whole bunch of ideas about um, already. And Riley Keough has been cast. She is the grandchild of Elvis Presley, um, daughter of Lisa Marie and someone who was not Michael Jackson, whose name eludes me at this point. Um, And (laughs) yeah, yeah. And she uh, looks like what I imagined Daisy Jones looking like based on the descriptions in the book. It's, you know, a seventies rock band. That's kind of a Fleetwood Mac avatar. And she's got this long blonde hair. I think she's going to pull it off. Um, she can pull off the look. I'm really interested. Like, does she also sing? Is she going to do the singing? Who's writing the music for the show? But I am so in, I mm. really loved the story and I'm excited. This is an adaptation I'm excited for, or at least very curious about because the book was great. It could be a great, TV show. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, Prime for um, a limited series. This is 12 episodes. Um, Can imagine a sort of edgier, almost famous vibe Mm -hmm. to it in terms of something that you've seen before. Oh, yeah. Like a young Kate Hudson could have done this part, I think. That's good. Somewhere between between The Runaways, which was the 2010... um, uh, biopic of that band which i thought was great dakota mm-hmm. fanning and then let's see i think Kristen stewart played joan jett i actually really liked that movie um i'm not sure if anyone saw it really but i really liked it but i can see a similar i don't think i don't feel like this movie is like a hardcore like I'm trying to think like the doors kind of rock and roll vibe oh, but it's also yeah. not the literal purple tinted sunglasses that kate hudson wears an almost famous <laughs> kind of vibe so it's somewhere you know it's not quite that it's not quite that anesthetized um, I really like Almost Famous, but as I've watched it, as I've gotten older, it's like it's like theme park rock music mm. kind of a story. Interestingly, um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, and I think the the book is less about, or the story here is less about the music than about these relationships that exist yep. between all of the musicians, and they're the kind and the intensity of relationships that happen. Like it's it's allowed to happen, and it can occur in the universe because these people are like on a bus together, traveling around the country for right. a jillion years, and they work in close quarters, and they know everything about each other, and they love each other, and they get on each other's nerves, and it's just that kind of like intimacy that breeds all of those things. But it, I don't think it's so much about music as it is about these people um where yeah. yeah we're almost famous is like that's a that's like a, that's a movie about rock yeah <laughs> yeah except it's weird though because it's gonna have the same problem as almost famous is like how do you make a credible sounding fake rock band in the 70s yeah you know like it's a it's like a very it's a very sort of mimetic problem to think about <laughs> yeah. where it sounds like a 70s rock band but it can't also sound like it's doing a impression of 70s mm-hmm. rock which um is kind of an interesting challenge to say yeah, the least. I, it is interesting that she has a rock and roll background i wonder if that matters one bit 
Yeah. Like, though she was Elvis's granddaughter, like, mm. has she ever been on a, doesn't mean she's been on a tour. Right. I, I don't or have like, any uh, idea about this. A stage presence, I think, is certainly a thing that's going to be necessary from the mm-hmm. from who from a person playing this role and just sort of like a built-in charisma. I'm so curious about who's doing the music for this. Like I've had I was trying to describe to people like if I imagined what it would be like it'd be like Grace Potter kind of or um Hmm. You know, like, Interesting. like who's alive now that can channel that 70s rock sound? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Soundtrack is going to be fun. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, more adaptation news. I have a, a conspiracy theory. No, it's not conspiracy. <laughs> it's not even tinfoil hat. It's just supposition. Okay. Not all <laughs> suppositions are conspiracy theories. <laughs> Uh, Lord of the Rings series at Amazon is already greenlit for season two, even though, to our knowledge, not a frame hmm. of season one has been shot. My theory here is the Mandalorian is blowing up uh, and Amazon's nervous. I think that's probably a very good theory. You probably haven't watched a frame of the Mandalorian. Are people in your world talking yes. about the Mandalorian as much as they're talking about it in my Head and house and immediate circle. <laughs> the couple people I'm close to that are Star Wars nuts are talking about yeah. the Mandalorian. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, but there is a character in revealed at the end of episode one of Mandalorian that is now basically the single most interesting thing in the world to my children. <laughs> there's, there's, there's like leftover Halloween candy, breathing, and this thing. Like that's kind of it. That's all they're interested in right now. That's fantastic. And I got to say, it's a very wonderful excuse for me to be excited about Star Wars stuff too. I'm not a, I'm not opposed to their um, enthusiasm at this particular moment. So we don't know much about this story. Remember, we're told it's in the second age of men around the time the rings were made. And for those of you who don't know anything about this, I don't want to get into what that might mean or doesn't mean prequel to not just the series, not just the events of the Lord of the Rings series, but the Hobbit itself quite a bit earlier. Um, they, there's some cast members that have been announced. None of them are names that are familiar to me. We don't even have, I think, a release date for season one. I mean, look, I guess it makes sense that if you're going to spend a billion dollars for the rights to something, you're not going to make one season and see how it goes. But I, it, yeah, it is one of those things like this is so an investment. Yeah. yeah and we could get two bad seasons at least <laughs> if it's, it's bad. A, yeah, this is the kind of thing that like I think your theory is correct. that but like Because it notes in this variety piece that pre-production on the first season is in progress and it's set to film in New Zealand. So right, like not a single – frame of this has been shot there's nothing to base like this is great so we're going to renew it there's there has to be something else driving why are we going Mm -hmm. to just declare now two seasons of it and they didn't declare a commitment to two seasons at the outset um and the thing that has changed in the world is maybe if it's not even directly the mandalorian it's that the Disney Plus stuff is turning out to be huge and yes. gaining a lot of traction. And Amazon is probably worried about Disney eating its lunch or at least cannibalizing some of its audience. So some mm. like, hey, stick around. Don't cancel your Amazon Prime membership or don't like spend all of your TV time watching Disney because we're yeah, going to have two right. seasons of like, look over here, look over here. We're going to have two seasons of Lord of the Rings. 
It is interesting. I don't know how people's use cases vary, but I'll describe mine and see if yours resonates with it at all. To this point, for our streaming purposes, if we're sort of undirectedly looking for something to watch on a streaming service, we tend to go to Netflix Mm -hmm. because it just feels like there's more. I only go to Amazon Prime if I know something's only on Amazon Prime, like it was Modern Love for a while, you know. Um, there's a couple of, I can't remember, things that were on uh, the big sick is an Amazon Prime yeah. thing like I knew was there, so I went there. But I tend not to open up Amazon Prime just to sort of see what's there. Disney Plus already, my kids and I, again, the 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 who Disney Plus is for is a fascinating thing. But like, we will go there and just sort of bop around and see what's available. So now it's Netflix and Disney Plus competing for our idle first click open to to browse mm-hmm. our browsing click and Amazon better watch out. I think they better watch out if they care. I mean, if they care about this in any kind of the same way that Netflix or Disney plus does, they need things that people don't just like, Oh, Lord of the Rings over there. I'm going to go there and then I'm going to bop back out and open Disney plus to see what's new. They've got a problem there about making it a destination to, to find stuff rather mm-hmm. than just to, to to go watch the thing you know is there already. Yeah, so, that's anyway. similar to the use case here. We're not doing Disney Plus, but Netflix is the go-to, you know, poke around until you find something you want to watch. And then I started doing Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus or whatever the heck it's called mm-hmm. um, when we were watching Dickinson. Uh, for the episode we did a couple of weeks ago. And I was just like, let's keep it and see what's going on. I want to finish the season of Dickinson. I started the morning show with Jennifer Mm. Aniston and Reese Witherspoon to see what that's all about. There's a couple other things that look interesting. And I think that um, that's going to be, it's going to be Netflix and Apple TV plus for me for a while of like, what do I feel like watching? Um, I don't ever just pop on prime to see what's there. I don't either. Uh, How'd you like the morning show? It's okay. It's mm, that's I, what I've heard. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I really like Reese Witherspoon, and I really like Jennifer Aniston. And it's there's a lot of very satisfying female rage. Like it's mm. it's basically about the Today Show with Steve Carell playing basically the Matt Lauer character who has gotten me too'd for a lot of inappropriate relationships at work, and now they're recovering. The show is trying to recover from it, and you're seeing all the characters do that, and it's trying to be really nuanced, I think, and trying to like show Steve Carell's character wrestling with what he's being accused of and how that uh, is dissonant with the way that he perceives himself as a good guy who just had consensual relationships with people. Um, Of course, like the show was written before some of the more malicious uh, and upsetting things like on the, on the far end of malicious and upsetting about Matt Lauer came came out. Um, But it just feels like it's just not quite where I want it to be like in tone. And there's just not a whole lot of like, I don't know, there's a lot of good yelling, but there's not a lot of feeling to the rest of it. I don't know. I mean, I'll finish the season because it'll be fun to watch Jennifer Aniston keep yelling about stuff, but we'll see. I haven't watched a frame of that. I've dipped into some of the other shows. They're all, all the Apple shows are uniformly brilliant to look at. Mm -hmm. They're so, they look so great. Yeah. The production Um, value is excellent. I found that I kind of like that there's not a million things to look at. Like there's like seven things and Mm -hmm. here they are. It's like going to a restaurant with a small menu. Like, okay, these are the things you want me to see and I'll pick one from there versus the roadside diner menu of Netflix, which is which you could have a cuisine from any particular thing and here's a billion variations on it becomes its own kind of paralysis too. Um, yeah, Amazon, they had Fleabag. I'm not sure what their 
until Lord of the Ring comes out, I'm not sure what they're hanging their hat on. I guess they have the report, which is going to be in theaters, and then go to Amazon Prime, which I'm mm-hmm. really excited um, for that one too. But suddenly it feels like they're in a hurry to make Lord of the uh-huh. Rings a thing. Yep. Um, so anyway, uh, where do you want to go Should next? we do other exclamation points? <laughs> Yes, let's do that. Um, In the book deal news of this week, restaurateur David Chang has sold his memoir in a two-book deal. The other book in the deal is for a cookbook um, to Clarkson Potter. It's an untitled work as of yet because he just got the deal. Uh, And it's the story of how the son of conservative Korean immigrants confronted his insecurities and depression and discovered his talents and found fellowship in the kitchen. Um, that's basically all of the news. David Chang's a really interesting guy, not universally beloved, and I am familiar with some of the criticism around him and Momofuku and uh, sort of the whole thing, this the whole empire that he has. But I love seeing, I just love watching him. I love listening to him talk about food. Um, really interesting, smart guy, undeniably, and I'm going to enjoy. I'm already excited to listen to the audiobook of this, of him talking about his family life. There are a few episodes of, um, I think it's Ugly Delicious that his mom appears on, mm-hmm. <laughs> on Netflix. And it's just wonderful watching him interact with his family and talk about his history and what food means to him. And you know I love a food memoir. Yeah, so, me too. Cool. And also just cool to see the ascendance of folks writing about food and food culture who aren't middle-aged white guys. You know, um, Samin Nosrat with Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat and her next new book coming out. We had Edward Lee. Was it last year that Buttermilk Graffiti came out two years ago? I don't remember, but it was I don't was know. Wonderful. Time is a flat circle, Rebecca. I know. <laughs> Anything that's like... Who can remember It's either book was older <laughs> than three years. It's either older than three years ago or yesterday. Those right. are my two options. <laughs> I feel the same way. I think it was last year. Yeah. Um, but cool to... I think it was st- we're starting to see um, a broader diversity of voices in the world of food and eating, and that's really exciting. Mm. Um, so this is... Yeah, this is an exclamation point announcement for me. I look forward to it. I, you know, I hadn't thought, put in quite these terms until right now. I don't know. I know a little of David Chang. I know I've been to Momofuku, a couple of the Momofuku properties in New York. I know a little bit about him. I've seen him a couple of things. But it occurs to me right now that he's, in a lot of ways, this not at all right, but sort of feels right that he's kind of occupying the space that Bourdain oh, opened yeah. up mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, his, I don't know, his, his um, Affect and personality are different, but there is a sort of foundational kindredness. Yeah, there's I feel a. Like. I, I need to, I need to yes. express that better, but I'm feeling something that they're aligned in some way that feels meaningful. Yeah, I can pick up that ball and run with it a little bit. Um, that mm. there's a, I think there's a shared, like very deep respect for food, but also an irreverence about yeah. about it as well, and culture and travel tie in largely there too. Um, David Chang has a new series on Netflix called breakfast, lunch and dinner. That's functionally a travel food show where each episode he's in a different location with a different celebrity going around that place, eating food and Mm -hmm. talking to them. And the opener, the very first episode is him and Seth Rogen getting just stoned AF in Vancouver and like eating a jelly donut that they're super excited about. And it did have a very Bourdain kind of, feeling to it of like this is also this yeah. is the thing you can imagine Bourdain doing is traveling to right. a city where weed is legal and just getting high and eating a donut and you know laughing a lot um not he doesn't David Chang doesn't have that same like 
that like bad boy swagger thing that especially young Bourdain had. But I do think that mm-hmm. they occupy kind of the same realm of um, that same realm of like what it is to be or one of the ways of being sort of a modern representative of food and culture. It doesn't take himself yeah, too there's seriously. A great, there's a great phrase. I can't remember what it's from. I'll have to Google it later. I, I feel like it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, but the phrase that comes to mind is a certain studied nonchalance yeah. that I can both see them yeah. um, deploying, to, I think, to very winning ends in most cases. Oh, yeah. Like um, Bourdain was super hardworking, really smart about his career. David Chang, also clearly very hardworking, made some very smart career choices that have paid off for him, but comes across as just like chill, you know, when mm-hmm. that can't fully be the case because he's doing a lot, um, but really fun to watch. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's see. Now it looks like studied nonchalance goes back to, to the 16th century. Mm. So a little before um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, though, maybe he used, a, used it and that's where I picked it up. Anyway, uh, let's see. Boy, it's going to be a bit of a... The next two are meaty. Let's do our last sponsor, and then we can kind of group these together at the end. Okay. Uh, Again, in annually recurring documents of interest that comes out (laughs) about publishing... Oh, a very disturbing mousetrap ad popped up for me. Oh, dear. Um, Boy. Uh... (laughs) Oof. What um, have you been Googling? I don't know. The Waterloo of rodents I just popped up <laughs> in my sidebar there. Um, so this is Publishers Weekly's annual industry salary survey. We talk about it every year. Largely, we say the same things. I, don't even know, I feel like I'm a little fatigued, um, even though we just do it once a year. There are more men than women, or the men get paid more than women, even though there's no more women working in publishing. The, the gap is narrowed, um, not because women are getting paid more, but because apparently men are getting paid less. I, I don't really understand. I don't either. I don't have a mental model for what that, what data that is representing or what trend that might be representing. Um, non-white members of the publishing professional class is still very small. White and Caucasian people make up 84% of the industry, for those of you keeping score at home, U.S. is about 66% white. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what else to say. I feel like we've said this before. Mm-hmm. We're saying basically the same thing again. Um, I don't know. What do you what do you what what do you want to say about this? Yeah, the thing that I've been really sitting with looking at this is the median compensation by job type and gender. And there's a little bar graph um, there that it's it's discrepant between men and women in all the categories. And in most of those categories, the men earn more. In operations and productions, the women earn more at a median. Um, but looking at those salaries, really what I've been struck by is these are numbers that look like pretty healthy to in like in management great salaries in most places mm. in America um, but like the median management 
salary for men is 139,000 for women it's 126,000 but if you look at editorial the median salary for men is 70,000 for women it's 54 um that is not a lot of money in new york city um and yeah not not all these jobs are in new york but a lot of them are yeah, yeah like new york sure. is just largely publishing is largely based in new york and one of my one of the assumptions i'm bringing into this is that this is like really a look at mm. the new york publishing world or that new york dominates it so much that these numbers couldn't really be swayed by publishing located elsewhere maybe that's incorrect um but that one of the things that we talk about is that publishing is able to like do what it does in some ways because of underpaying people but like you know a junior editor or a junior publicist gets the kind of salary that requires them to have one if not two side hustles or hopefully like rich parents who can underwrite their rent for a few years while they start to climb the ladder um we both know many many people who work in publishing or who have worked in publishing and even you know eight ten years into their career need to have additional side jobs in order to for it to be livable, to work in publishing. And I, I just think that needs a look. That's mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Um, also, the choice of... I felt like we had the terms of art had changed. I thought maybe people of color as a term would make more sense than non-white. It just mm-hmm. feels strange to me. I'm, not, um, I'm responding into that in real time. I haven't thought yeah. much about that. So if uh, just struck me again in looking at the how, how this is put together here... Interestingly, 44% of the people of color working in publishing work in editorial. So almost half of all people of color working in publishing are working in editorial. Now, what we don't see there is, is editorial the largest slice of the pie for all positions or not? I don't know, but that number struck me as well. Like, presumably that means there are a lot less than 44% everywhere else, and maybe even less than the already meager 16% in management, sales and marketing, operation, production, so on and so forth. I guess I'm, you might hear in my body, my body language that you can't <laughs> see a certain deflation of like, felt like for a while this was a story and we were t- paying attention to it. And now it has hit some sort of plateau or whatever inroads were being made feels to have stalled out. And here we are again at a new, barely discernibly different normal. Yeah, it feels similar to the place that we've hit with the Vita count, which came out a week or two ago and we didn't get to it on the show. And that also says something that like, yeah, that measuring these things matters. And I think it matters that we continue to look at the numbers, but just looking at them isn't, sufficient they do need to continue to change and i do and i recognize that especially changes in workforce take time um for trends to shift that you would have to do something drastic to make a big change in the numbers just in one year um Mm -hmm. but we should continue to see these changes occur and this needs to continue to be a conversation like it seems to me that publishing is and uh, like anybody like this is not specific to the publishing industry but there's a mm-hmm. lot of urgency around an issue when it's new and there's a lot of heat around talking about it online or there are hashtags and things are compelling and your feet are a little bit held to the flame and after that backs off and it just becomes like an accepted thing of like, yes, we know it's true that publishing has Mm -hmm. a gender problem or publishing has a race problem. Um, It's easy to fall back into complacency. And I would really love to see like, you know, 
notices from publishing houses about developing programs to improve diversity and inclusivity or hiring people who have that expertise and can bring it to HR into their hiring practices. But I don't know if that's happening. Presumably at corporations that large, someone has had that conversation, or I hope that we can presume that, but it really is going to require systematic solutions to create systematic changes. And it doesn't mm-hmm. look like at least we're seeing the results of that yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we can keep talking. I mean, you're right. It takes some time. At what point does that run out? I don't have a sense of that because we've we've what covered this every year for the last four. I mean, almost since we've been doing since we've been doing the show, which is five ish years now. We've talked about this every year. Is five years enough? You know, maybe we could go back and look at the 2014 version of this. I'm sure we could find it. Is it is it different? That's outside sort of what you might get from um, margin of error, right? Of just you know variation that's within the same band has progress been made based on this it feels like maybe barely maybe if you want to squint and look for it um are we going to be saying the same thing in five years and it's also still it takes time at what point does the i guess i don't know i I think you're right to be you're you're doing the more generous reading of these things do take time it's systemic blah 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 on the other hand at some point you you're you're saying well then it just hasn't worked yeah and I don't know what point that is. Uh, yeah I maybe think it it's hasn't premature to say that <laughs> it certainly hasn't worked yet are the wheels in motion to work in the future I think that's one piece of this puzzle I'd be interested for Publishers Weekly to survey because they surveyed say um, what percentage of um, employees know that their company has a sexual harassment policy very interesting data what percentage of their what percentage of employees know that their company has some sort of equitable hiring program in place? Like, mm. are there structural things happening inside of the companies that people are seeing? Because you would want to see that number, you would want and expect that number to rise first before you start seeing in headcount and median salary for, um, well, median salary for women, and then headcount and salary for people of color would follow hard upon, or not so hard upon, but some, some, <laughs> some unit of something would come later, but unless unless there's actually a goal and processes in place, then it's just something that people want to do and would like to have happen. And you and I both work in a company we know if it's something that doesn't have a budget, a timeline, right. or goals, tend not to happen <laughs> if uh, if it doesn't have those things. So maybe it's time. Maybe in order for things to really take place and need, get the time they need to take place. There has to be a plan. There has to yeah, be I agree. programs. There has to be outcomes. Talk about the outcomes of those programs. Because we see we're going to hire, you know, we're going to hire, or we're going to do um, uh, a manuscript contest for underrepresented. You see things like this come from time to mm-hmm. time. Be nice to see those sorts of things get talked about um, in the world of publishing in terms of who's doing the work. Day and day out basis. I guess I had a little thing in me about yeah, that. Yeah, you did. My apathy turned into something. Apathy plus. Nice when that happens. Um, <laughs> apathy plus. End. Find it now on your app store. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> apathy plus. I will be showing all <laughs> Noah Baumbach movies from oh. the early 2000s on apathy plus. <laughs> Pencil and a little ennui to most of your days. Yeah. Yeah. Some early Greta Gerwig performances. Um, okay. That's our show. Feedback. About the bonus episodes, still looking for those. Holiday wrecks are closed. Do not email us about that. I mean, you can, but they won't do you any good. Maybe you just need to get it off your keyboard. 
Um, also, uh, collections librarians especially talk to us about how cool or uncool or lukewarm it is to basically finagle using Wi-Fi settings longer time with our digital material. That's our show, Rebecca. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.